Uh, it's uh, fascinating what you uh, read in the business section of the Herald. Uh, I happen to be browsing through this, uh, just trying to clear my mind in the last 15 or so minutes, and I came across this ad, and the reason why it uh, grabbed my attention was because the picture obviously of Noah's Ark. And I was somewhat surprised that the picture of Noah's Ark was in the business section of the Herald. And then I was drawn to the heading at the top, I don't know if you can read it, it says, the benefits of diversification have been known for quite some time. Down the bottom in this uh, small text down here it says, if history has taught us anything, it's don't put all your eggs in one basket. And at that point I'm a little perplexed because I'm all for the diversification of the illustration. There's lots of different types of animals going in. But I couldn't help but wonder whether I'm all the eggs are in one basket. There was only one ark. There was one flood that destroyed everything else. Now, I say this just sort of by way of interest, and I can see the irony in it. Uh, I don't know whether or not the non-chicks will see the irony in it, uh, but I can see the irony in it because for me, if I wanted to escape the judgment of God, I'd be putting myself in the one basket. Whereas I get the impression that the people who are advocating this particular piece of financial product, um, and I'm not going to tell you who they are, uh, they're actually sort of saying the way you escape calamity is you hedge your bets. A little bit here, a little bit there, diversification. The way you escape the great stock market crash is a little bit everything. Some properties, some stocks, some cash, some... Whereas it's interesting because it presumes that at some point there will be a certainty that you will not do well financially. Therefore you actually need some diversification. So they actually presume that at some point in the future, if you have all your resources in one particular thing, you're actually going to come a profit at some point. See, in the mind of the financial planner, they know as they track the cycles of the market that at some point, ruin will come. And depending upon whether or not you'll diversify according to their astute financial planning and knowledge, will depend on just how badly you fall. So their advice is don't put all your eggs in one basket. I just can't help but wonder whether or not that's just the one basket sitting there that was the only means by which they were saved. Anyway, we're not preaching on Genesis today, although we may be at some point in the future. Why do I start with this illustration? Well, I start with the illustration partly by way of the fact that today, as we look at the next in our series of three talks on Habakkuk, we're dealing with the issue of judgment and the way in which God judges. Uh, last week, we looked at two particular key questions that Habakkuk had asked of God. The first was, Yahweh, God, have you actually heard? Are you listening to my cry as a prophet? The situation was the Babylonians were coming against the nation of Jerusalem. And the question that Habakkuk the prophet was asking was, where is God now? Has he perhaps forgotten Israel? In the midst of the invading Babylonians, God, where are you? It appears, Habakkuk saying, as though you're actually judging us. But surely you're the God who looks after his people and judges all the other nations. Are you listening to our cry? And at the same time, the light of Habakkuk's cry, have you heard, he's saying, are you the same God that dealt with our forefathers? Or perhaps, have you changed? And we saw in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, that God actually answers Habakkuk's inquiries. And today we're going to spend some time looking at the depth the significance and in many respects the horror of the answer that God gives Habakkuk. The second question which relates to this, which was the one that Habakkuk asked in chapter 1 verse 17 is, will you actually restrain these Babylonians? Firstly, will you listen to us when we call? 
And secondly, will you restrain them? And I want to suggest that God's answer to Habakkuk's inquiry is actually of great encouragement. Because God answers in the positive. He says, yes, I will restrain these Babylonians who are coming against you. Those who bring violence, those who bring strife, will be judged by God and judged accordingly. And as we know, as a result of this judgment against the Babylonians, the Israelites who have been taken into captivity were actually released from slavery and brought back to the Promised Land. Last week I suggested we learned four things from Habakkuk. Firstly, that God listens and hears. Secondly, that God acts justly in all situations. Thirdly, that God is on for his people. He acts for his people. And finally, that God acts in his good time. And so now we turn today to deal with the judgment of God. And I want to suggest that these things that we saw last week about God still hold true this week. In the midst of judgment, God listens and hears. In the midst of judgment, God will act justly. In the midst of judgment, God is acting for his people. And in the midst of judgment, it takes place at the very moment that God wants it to take place in his good timing. See, God's act of judgment, as I alluded to last week, but we're going to look a little bit more fully this week, indicates that God is not a contradictory God. God is acting very consistently. At some point in history, God had said to the nation of Israel, if you turn from me and do not follow my ways, I will judge you. And lo and behold, the word of God is now coming to bear at the time at which Habakkuk writes as the Babylonians are invaded. But at the same time, God also indicates that he will destroy the Babylonians. Chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Here is his response. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And at this point, God is giving Habakkuk a vision of the destruction that will come upon the Babylonians. He is not explicitly stating when it will take place, this afternoon, although we get the impression that, that will be Habakkuk's wish. The Babylonians are there. He's in Jerusalem. This afternoon will be nice, please God. God doesn't indicate the very timing of it other than to say it will surely take place. And it will come at the right time. And so now, as we read through chapter 2, let us see how God judges this nation of Babylon. For these people are selfish and arrogant. And God holds them culpable for their actions, every single one of them. For their actions are terrible indeed. The way chapter 2 is structured is it's made up of five woes. And we see it from chapter 4, sorry, from chapter 2, verse 6, down to the end of chapter 2. I'm going to work through each of these at some speed now, looking at the time. Now, for each of these five woes, it has a reasonably common structure. This is for each of them. The first is there is some form of violent denunciation. God speaks against the Babylonians. 
And then this is followed by the way in which he will deal with them or God's treatment of them. And then we see the criticism that is brought against them. Why, why should this take place? Why is God doing this? How is God acting justly in this particular situation? And then I want to suggest there's a fourth component to it and that is that something actually bears witness to the rightness of that which is going on. So in each of the woes, there is a speech, mainly one sentence, maybe a couple of words, a denunciation, a word of judgment, if you like, against one of the activities of the Babylonians. The second thing in each of the woes is the treatment that God will actually bring against them. The third thing is the criticism. How is it that God can act justly? And the fourth thing is the thing that actually witnesses to the fact that what is going on in this particular woe is right or is just. Let's have a look at it. So the first woe is in verses 6 to 8. And the denunciation that is brought against the Babylonians is that they plundered people. They called the plundering Babylonians. That's their labour. That's the word of judgement that God speaks against them. But notice the treatment that will be brought against them. They themselves will be plundered. And why? Well, because they plundered other people. They are titled the plundering Babylonians. That is their word of judgment. That is God speaking against them. They will themselves be plundered. And why? Because they took from others what did not rightly belong to them. And I would suggest that the thing that bears witness to this, which demonstrates the rightness of this action of God, is this little phrase witnessed to or attested to by, you see there down in verse 8, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. Uh, Yes, that's exactly right. See, the blood of man and the violence on the earth testifies that the action of what was going on in the Babylonians was actually wrong. We know elsewhere in the scripture, Cain and Abel, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the earth. The blood of the slain, the blood of those who have been plundered, bears witness to the fact that the action of God is actually right. He's actually bringing justice. Let's move on to the second woe. The second woe in verses 9 to 11. The cunning, scheming Babylonians. Not really a title you'd like to take on for yourself or be known to your friends by. I'm the cunning, scheming. God is speaking against them. And what's going to happen to them? They're going to be denounced. Why? Well, they cut people off. And what attests to this? The thing that attests to it is the fact of the buildings that they constructed to show that they actually made all their gain by scheming and being cunning. As you drive down the street and you look at grand houses in a particular part of the city or in a particular part of the world, you're never actually sure what brought about the grandeur. Was it that the builder actually worked hard for themselves over many years, earned enough money and paid for such grand construction? Was it that the current owner inherited it from previous generations and they never have worked a day in their life? 
Or perhaps the building was acquired by unjust gain, proceeds of crime, for example. The building itself on the outset doesn't tell you, does it? But it reflects a certain lifestyle. It reflects a certain position. What's going on here is Yahweh, God is specifically saying, the very fact that if outsiders look at the buildings, they will see that you have gained these buildings by unjust gain. Presumably because they were far more grand than anything else you know about them. They could only have been gained because the Babylonians were scheming and cunning. And in doing so, they did it at other people's expense. The third one. The great city of the Babylonians and from other ancient Near Eastern records we realise that the city was truly magnificent. Uh, Hanging gardens of Babylon. Just the absolute splendour of what was going on. But notice... Uh, the, uh, what is brought against them, the denunciation is the city itself. And that will be overwhelmed, completely and utterly destroyed in many respects. Why? What is it built on? Well, in this case, it's not built on cunning and scheming, it's built on iniquity. There in verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Sure, the Babylonian Empire was impressive. Absolutely. A world best. But look at the foundations on which it's built. Cunning, scheming, deception, the blood of others, the goods of others, the lives of others, all the other nations they destroyed. (coughs) And what attests to the fact that God is going to act rightly in this particular woe? Well, I would suggest it's verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The comparison could not be any starker. You want to look at a great city? Absolutely pales in comparison. When you look at the grandeur and the glory of the Lord, which covers the entire earth, the city would have covered areas of square kilometres. But the glory of the Lord covers the entire earth. And the fifth one, sorry, the fourth one, in verses 15 to 17. The perverting Babylonians, not a nice pile to take, not a nice thing to be left on your headstone when you die, here lies, who pervert other people. You see why God is going to judge this nation? They themselves will be disgraced because they removed the dignity of other people. Uh, the practice that we know, not just from Scripture but from other places, was the Babylonians would invite people into their hospitality, people who they wanted to essentially make fun of. They would get them drunk and they would continue to ply them with alcohol until these people just acted shameless, shameful and stupidly because they'd lost control of their senses and their body. And the Babylonians thought this was great. They enjoyed doing it. They did it regularly and they did it often. They are a perverted people and God says you will will yourselves be disgraced. Notice the way in which the language is used in verses 15 to 17. There's this this great analogy here uh, where he talks in verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The Babylonians, instead of filling people with alcohol, 
are now filled themselves with shame. The vision pushes one more step. Notice what the Babylonians are filled with. Sure, shame, but how does it come in the text? Have a look. Verse 16. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. The cup in the Lord's right, Lord's right hand, elsewhere in Scripture we know, is used as an image of the great wrath of God that is poured out on nations as they drink of this cup. The perverted Babylonians will drink and they will drink deeply of the cup of the wrath of God. The fifth woe in verses 18 to 20. The idolatry of the Babylonians. Do you see how each of the woes is just sort of being ramped up as we go on? And finally in this fifth woe, the idolatry of the Babylonians will be found wanting, will be found empty, will be found useless, will be found false, will be found impotent. The very thing the Babylonians wanted from their idols was not impotency. They wanted power. They wanted prosperity. They wanted fertility. What does the vision say? The very thing that you sought for will be found to be entirely false. The very thing on which you based your hope, the very thing on which you based your focus and your efforts and your energies, that are bound against idols, will be found to be completely empty. No matter how much you dress them up on the outside, they are completely false. And why? Because Yahweh is Lord. Because Yahweh is Lord. I think what I like about this is the fact that the man or the nation or the people who are continually bowing down, and notice what they're doing to the idols. You see that in the text? What does he say? Verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Expecting that this silent, inanimate object would then teach them. Notice what happens in the vision? Let all the earth be silent before God. Let all the earth be silent before God. For speaking to an inanimate object is a useless activity. And expecting an inanimate object, inanimate object to speak to you, to teach you, is also found to be an infinite activity. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Why keep silence before him? Well, let's come to that in a minute when we start looking at chapter 3. See, these five woes are the judgment that will come on the Babylonians. These five woes are coming because of their wickedness. God speaks against the Babylonians and indicates he will restrain their wickedness. He will restrain their bloodshed. He will restrain their greed. He will restrain their violence. He will restrain their lurid pervertedness. And he will restrain their idolatry. And in doing so, all the nations will recognise that he is truly God. Friends, this is the God of the Bible. This is the God who brings judgment. And look at how it comes. It reaches into every part of wickedness, every part of bloodshed, every part of injustice, every part of idolatry. God judges and his judgment is thorough and totally just. I 
think wants to know whether or not this word of judgment is trustworthy. What are you missing? God's replied, but what does Habakkuk do? Well, I think he responds. And he responds by remembering the way God had acted in the past. I'm going to really quickly because I've got about three minutes to get through this. Habakkuk in chapter 3 remembers the way in which God had acted in the Exodus and the way in which God had acted in bringing the people into the promised land. Notice how in chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, God appears. He appears as an awesome, majestic, kingly individual. He appears in great glory. This is the God who comes to crush the nations. How does he act? Chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. He comes with plagues. Remember the Exodus, the way in which he pronounces judgment against Egypt. He comes with plagues, with earthquakes. Judges chapter 5, verses 4 to 5, if you remember, if you want to write that down and look it up, where it talks about how when God entered into the promised land, the earth literally shook. And the nations round about were terrified of the invading Israelites. Mount Sinai, the nation of Israel come to the mountain and are absolutely petrified. Why? Because of the fire and because of the earthquakes. When you encounter God, the God of the Bible, this is the God whom you are encountering. But notice also in chapter 3, verses 8 to 15, how he brings victory. He has power over nature. And we see this in Exodus. The enemy are trampled in verses 12 to 15. God's wrath is against those who are opposed to him. And I would suggest that this great section in chapter 3, this praise of Habakkuk and this prayer of Habakkuk, is a right response in remembering how God has acted in the past. God had said to his people, I will rescue you from Egypt. And he does so. He says to the newly established nation of Israel, I will give you the promised land. And he does so. But the way in which he works is spectacular. It is out of the ordinary. And at the same time, it is also terrifying. It is a sight to behold. And the people who experience the wrath, the anger and the character of God revealed in that stand in awe and fear. They are not ambivalent about it. They are not, this is God, he's my mate. They fall flat on their face and are absolutely terrified. So what are we shown in these couple of chapters? We see that God pronounces judgment on the Babylonians. We see that God punishes Babylonians justly. They are guilty people and he holds them to account and rightly so. And it happens in his good time. So here's my question to you in the last couple of minutes. Do you wonder whether or not God will restrain wickedness on the earth? Do you wonder whether or not he will bring about justice? As I said last week, as I reflect on the world, it is not a right place. And we do well to ask the same question that Habakkuk asked, God, where are you? When will you bring injustice to account? But the other question that comes up from today is, will you fear God? For the God, as he acted in the Exodus, at Canaan, and in this particular prophecy in Habakkuk, is the same God who still rules the earth today. And in the light of God's wrath, 
all of humanity does well to plead for mercy in exactly the same way that Habakkuk does. In your wrath, remember mercy, he says in chapter 3. Why is this appropriate? Well, we know that God's wrath secures salvation for who? For his people, for Christians. How do we know? How can we be certain? Acts chapter 17, if we had time, we'd spend more time looking at it. Acts chapter 17, if you're writing it down, verses 29 to the end of the chapter. Paul's speech before the Areopagus, where he speaks to the Athenians, and what does he say? Let me read it for you. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says this. He says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I almost wonder where or not he's got a crack in the back of his mind. That particular passage, the judgment of God. Paul, uh, Paul goes on. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Can't help but wonder whether or not Paul has been reading Habakkuk. It talks about judgment, it talks about idolatry, and it talks about living righteously. Here is the man, Jesus, who, because of his righteousness, God has raised from death to life, and he is the one who will come as the judge of the earth. And his judgment, I want to suggest, from elsewhere in Scripture, is just as spectacular as the way in which God of the Old Testament worked in Egypt in Canaan and in the destruction of Babylonians. So how then will you respond? For at the moment, God gives humanity everywhere time to respond rightly. Time to become one of his people. So that when the wrath of God comes, his people will be escaped, will be relieved from judgment and will be saved. The challenge for us is if we have a right understanding of God's character, a right understanding of the way in which he judges the world, then the judgment on this world is imminent. 2 Peter 3. Scoffers will come. Where is this God? He has set a day on which he will judge the world and it will come like a thief in the night, unexpectedly, suddenly. My question to you is, are you ready? Are you prepared? Well, keep in mind that when you call out to God to end with this, He hears you, and in His good timing, He will do so. And He has already decreed that in His good timing, it will come when the Lord Jesus returns, any day. And if this is a great concern to you, and you do not think you're right with God, please talk to someone about it this very afternoon. Come and see me or talk to your friend. Next week, we're going to look at the righteousness and what it means for us to live in the light of what we've heard so far. Let me pray for us. Dear Father God, we thank you that you are a God who judges injustice and mercy. We thank you that you have chosen to show mercy on those whom you love. And we thank you, Father, that you have established your dear Son, Jesus, as ruler and judge over this world. We pray for us, Father, that we would be fearful, that we would stand in fear and in awe of you. That, Father, we would have a right recognition of who you are. <coughs> and that we would recognise that the only means to escape your wrath is through the offer of your salvation. 
I mean, Christ sees in your mind. 